Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. For fundraising icon Paul D'Alessandro, what began as a career traveling the world to protect the assets of high net worth clients quickly transformed into over three decades of guiding nonprofits to billions in funds raised for good causes. His commitment to the rapid evolution of the field is evident in his new book, The Future of Fundraising is Here. In our conversation, Paul shared his thoughts on his own personal evolution, his work, and his new book. Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk today. You're welcome. I'm just happy to be able to do this with you, Jay. It's a pleasure. Now, we haven't had a chance to do this in real life yet, but you're also working a lot in this kind of strange world we're all in right now. And in fact, focusing a lot on it in, I'm sure, the book that you've just written. And we'll get into that. But I'd first love to know your own personal origin story in this field. Can you tell us a bit about how it all started? Take us way back. Yeah, so this goes back to the late 80s. I was uh, graduated law school and um, really wasn't thrilled with the practice of law at the time. So I took a job at Deloitte. It was Deloitte Haskins and Sales back then in D.C. Mm-hmm. and doing some um, international tax consulting, which led to another position um, with uh, another international company. And uh, I wound up traveling around the world and dealing with high net worth donors because what we were doing was kind of uh, protecting third country, country nationals and expats on you know where to keep money safe from taxation legitimately, which um, kind of made me understand really the flow of money and how money works. And um, I got a letter from my alma mater, Notre Dame, where I went and three of my, two of my brothers, my brother-in-law and sister went said, do you, you know, we're looking for somebody to be the regional director of development for the Southeast U.S. Would you be interested? And it came from my um, department chair at the time, who was the VP of University Relations. I said, oh, I'd love to apply that. Live in Florida and uh, work for Notre Dame, raising money. I didn't even know what it meant. And I applied and um, I got the job and I wound up working with a very small team. I think there was 30 of us and we raised $450 million on that campaign. And, and that kind of threw me into this world of fundraising. And I thought I would do that and just kind of learn about, you know, wealthy people and what they do and how they do it and what really makes them happy. And then I would go do, do that. But I really never found that person who was like, this is the perfect thing to do. So I met some amazing people in that job, you know, heads of corporations and you know, politicians. It was, it was, it was a fun job. Then I went back into the corporate sector again for a brief time. And, um, and then that took me into, again, a step back into consulting with a, with a bunch of guys who left Notre Dame. Now, before you go too far into, into your career though, the people you just described that you were meeting, especially in the development work, but even before as a consultant, fresh out of law school almost, and they were these high net worth individuals. Was that a world that you already knew? Yeah, it was. Um, I grew up in, um, in the suburbs of um, outside of New York City, and um, you know, it was an it was an affluent community. So there were a lot of people from Wall Street who lived in the community. You know, CEOs of companies, and so we went to school with the kids, and it was just something that I was, you know, I, I was always comfortable around people who had money, and you know, was never afraid 
to talk to anybody who had money and, and had a really uh, good understanding of the way they thought, even back then at the time. And tell me about your family, Where, uh, your mother and your father. Well, my, 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 they met uh, in Brooklyn and um, they uh, really didn't come from any money, really. My father was a self-made self-made man became a CEO of a company in New York and um, wound up dying in a, a tragic death it was a plain plain thing and uh, but they met and they um, said you know we wanted a different life for a family that we're going to raise and so they moved out into the hinterlands in New Jersey hmm. and uh, but you know they were well educated went to um, you know Jesuit uh, schools and you know they got graduate degrees and that was just a very important piece of of their, what they you know helped us learn to do they wanted us to have important education and faith was a very important thing for them too so you grew up in the church is that right yep so we grew up catholic um italian catholic and um it was just a very um very important thing for them for for us and we went to catholic schools like so many people did and, and supporting catholic education then became you know part of my life i mean i went to catholic high school catholic undergrad at notre dame and then i went to catholic law school in new york and um so it was kind of drilled into me one of the reasons i asked that question is that many times when we talk to people in this field we don't really ask not only where they come from professionally, but where they came from personally, the relationship to money and the relationship to faith, as you just talked about, and all those things and how they relate to how we perceive philanthropy. So you just talked about supporting the, the church and, and I guess supporting uh, the, the school. Um, did you have kind of an early reference point in your life for charity, for giving? Sure. Well, both my, both my parents were very involved in the church and, um, since my dad was an exec, you know, he got called on to a lot of boards, um, and was asked for input and gave, you know, a bunch of money to different educational institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was chairman of the board of a community college. And, um, so I watched growing up that, you know, that there was a great need out there to help other people and whether it's in, you know, it was time, talent or treasure. And so it was just part of our, our life growing up. Mm-hmm. You know? And so we, it, I never really gave much of a thought of it. That's just what you did. And then, you know, when I got a, took the job, um, you know, working for Notre Dame, you know, a Catholic priest once said to me, well, Paul, I'm just happy you're not going to be working for the almighty buck. And, and I thought, well, you know, money will come easy to me and I need to give back to the world. And, and I thought fundraising was a way to do that, to help, you know, this institution, which I cared so much about, um, thrive. But before you found that somewhat organically way to do that and, and commit to that work, you did choose to go to law school. How did you make that decision? And how did you decide to kind of turn away from that and go into this world of consulting running around the world? Well, I'm kind of laughing inside because, um, you know, the, some of those people grew up in uh, Italian families, you know, I, I think my dad thought I had a gift to gap and I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And then uh, I think I'd mentioned that at a party at a very young age. I mean, I'm talking about 11, 12. My father said, no, 
there's no home life. You, you're going to, you, you need to be a lawyer, you know? And so it kind of got put in my head that, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a lawyer. I never really thought much about it <laughs> until I got to law school. I really did not enjoy um, law school because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of thinking that goes on in law school. And though it was a, it was a great experience for me and it's helped me in so many different ways. And I'm, I'm glad I did, but that's kind of how that started. I just thought, well, that's, that's what, uh, I should do. And then you hit the road and doing that consulting at that time, especially it was a place like Deloitte. And I guess Later, you were with another firm. I'm yeah, another firm. It was Alexander and Alexander Consulting, which got bought out by Aon. Right. So, uh, well, Alexander and Alexander Consulting and was part of Alexander and Alexander. Um, I, it was um, a brokerage firm with, that had a consulting arm to it. And that must have been quite an experience because even if you're around people growing up where there's a comfort with comfort, so to speak, that doesn't necessarily translate into the world of high finance. So when you were first uh, sitting down with these folks and talking to them about, you know, uh, managing their their companies, their organizational effectiveness, uh, how to run a multinational, uh, how easy was it to just you know slide into that and feel completely at home doing that kind of work? You know, with the on the consulting side, it was you know I, I was very comfortable because I you know I had the um, you know I had the the academic training to have the conversation, but I also since my father was in consulting you know, his entire life, you know, I kind of watched that and, and global travel, even back in the late eighties, you know, in the eighties wasn't, wasn't a big deal. By, by the time I was 25, 26, I, by the time I was 30, I guess I, I'd had, you know, I was licensed to practice law in three States. I'd been to every country in Europe and every province in Canada. And, um, you know, it was nothing to go international and get on a plane and go somewhere to consult with a, you know, um, a, a U.S. based company uh, somewhere else. So, I and and talking to the executives was was fun for me, mm-hmm. and I always, I just learned I learned a ton about it too. Well, what's something that you learned early on that really stuck with you? Oh, you know, I well, the thing that stuck with me was the movement of money, mm-hmm. and that you know, uh, because that you know. The laws have changed a lot since then, you know, because some countries taxed on worldwide income, and some countries taxed on just income that comes in in country. At least back then, you know. So you know, we were um, putting money in o- offshore sites legitimately for execs, so they wouldn't get the tax burden coming in country. And when you're dealing, with, let's say, with a, a French citizen who's working for a U.S. company based in UK, let's say, let's say it gets complicated, or um, a US citizen working um, overseas, you know, wh- where his tax domicile is was important. So you'd have to, for some corporations, they move somebody to um, a low tax state and have the residency set up there before they send them overseas because of the tax consequences. So it was just really interesting for me to see. Uh, what people did to maximize their income. Even though that was a pretty high flying time, literally for you up in the plane. <laughs> yeah. That at the same time, the scale, the magnitude of wealth today seems on a higher order than even that. Is that, is that true? Oh yeah. It's just 
it's expo- it's so exponential. I mean, back then, you know, if somebody had a certain job, you kind of had a sense of what they made, but there's been so much money made and it, and it happens so fast now for some people. And then there's great transfers of wealth um, and the numbers are just, just astounding. I was in um, New York City the other day and um, there was an individual who I was told on a billionaire's rope over on Central Park South, spent a hundred million dollars for a triplex, you know, one of the high rises, you know, and it's just, you know, he's a hedge fund manager. People didn't make that kind of money back then. So the numbers are crazy. And the reason I'm asking that is because of course our relationship to money changes as money itself changes, how people make it, where they keep it, how, as you said, how it moves cross border and all of that influences a lot of things, including our perception about what we should do with it, including philanthropy. Did you even have discussions that either uh, professionally or personally kind of broach that subject about, so what have you thought about, you know, what you're doing with your own school or do you, uh, do you help the community or uh, do you have a family foundation? Not necessarily uh, an interview as part of business, but just getting to know these folks. Was that no. already something that you did? No, no, that wasn't really part of it, you know, and I didn't give much thought to, to that when I was doing the consulting, you know, the companies like McKinsey and Booz Allen and, you know, what we were doing, you know, they're just um, Towers Parent at the time. There's just so many uh, companies, but that wasn't, that was the thing. You got to remember too, back then, uh, I got to think it was like 400,000 charities it wasn't as rich of an industry as it is now. And um, so it's, it's just changed so much in 30, 30 plus years. It has. I mean, I know the numbers go all the way from 1.2 to 1.6 just in this country alone. Depends upon what we're counting mm-hmm. for nonprofits. But it's also true about the scale of the giving. And you said you went on, of course, to, to Notre Dame and worked on that campaign. $450 million is a lot of money today. But then it was really a lot of money. That must have felt like something to be a part of that. Yeah, but it's hard to conceptualize. Yeah, it was it was amazing because the campaign before that was like a hundred and some odd million, mm-hmm. and and so you think oh, four hundred fifty million dollars. It's it's hard to grasp that number, and um, and now they just closed out like a five billion plus capital campaign. But their quota their quota bearing staff, you know, is you know, three hundred fifty plus you know, fundraisers on staff. And, and so it's, it's a machine, you know, to raise money now. Right. And and I guess finding where, where the money is and making those associations with people, building those relationships over time, all those things we talk about, but the capacity seems to be there and the machine we built seems to be working in a profound way. I mean, at Notre Dame, 350 people was a lot of people. But I wonder what the scale is today. Has no, it- that, that's what the scale is. Well, that last when I, you know, having conversation with some folks, that's what, you know, that's what the quota bearing staff was, you know. And, but that's what you need to raise billions of dollars on a, on a capital campaign. Right. At least that, that's, that's my, and, I, and you know, got to remember hospitals and schools, you know, they're different, but you, you still need boots on the ground. And technology is changing a lot of it. And that's why, you know, I, I wrote, wrote the book to say, you know, things are going to be different moving forward. But I still go back to thinking of the days sitting 
where there was one prospect researcher and he had like 30 books and mm-hmm. you know, it would take a week to get information on one person or, you know, my mentor said, well, how do you find out, you know, if somebody's what they're worth is you get in a car and you drive by their house and duck low and, you know, see if there's any furniture in the house. You know, <laughs> that, that was a good sign that, you know, that they, they weren't uh, house poor and it's just so different now. Uh, there are a lot of prospect researchers who will listen to this and, and, and giggle. Uh, over that story. Um, but no, you, you went from that world, of course, into straight, you know, into consulting, um, both taking your management piece as well as your fundraising piece into all the work you did. And then, of course, forming your own firm, which you've been running for years. And I want to make sure that I have a name right now because I believe you've gone through a rebranding. Is that right? Yeah. So we formed, you know, the originally, um, the company was Harvest Development, and uh, you know, it's a, after probably around 2000, you know, we did a survey with a marketing firm. They said, "Well, everyone knows you," mm-hmm. which I have to laugh about sometimes. Like, who's everyone? You know. So, um, and then I uh, said, "We'll put Dell Center Inc." So, you know, there's so many firms that have their names on it, and then, but right now, I've rebranded again to High Impact Nonprofit Advisors. And um, because that's kind of the heart of what we're trying to do is, you know, have, you know, the highest impact. We want our, our clients to have the highest impact, you know, doing what they, they love to do and what they want to accomplish. And impact does seem to be one of the themes. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about a lot so far in this conversation, but it, it, it's something you embed in when you're talking the website. And, and I believe it's, a, it's probably a theme in this book. And it's certainly one of the things that we're all talking about in the field. Um, it's something that donors seem to want. They're articulating it that way. Um, can you talk about that in the context of the work that you've been doing as a consultant over the years um, in terms of how you've seen that evolution and what donors are, are looking for today and, and how we're trying to provide that sense of impact for them? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, like, like I said, it's, it's, tra- it's changed a lot because donors now are much more savvy um, when it comes to giving and they have a whole lot more opportunities to, you know, quote, have an impact in, in the things that they wanted to affect, if you will, you know, so, you know, part of what it, what the book was about is that, you know, there's, you can do the ask for money, but I don't know as if I feel that just asking people for money will be the sole source of revenue for any one organization, because you have, you have, um, you know, social impact, you have impact investing, and um, you, you have some um, people who will just go and create, find a way to solve a problem without even forming a, a 501c3. They have so much wealth, they'll just bypass the, the nonprofit sector itself, and they might even establish a, you know, a business that generates revenue that supports a certain activity. And, you know, the end goal for people is, you know, they want to, you know, they want to have do, do good in the world. And I, and I tell my clients all the time, this isn't a, a head game to convince somebody to give money. It's really a hard thing. And it's, and that's why you see so many of these events where, you know, you, you have somebody tell their story and people are just so moved. And, you know, I learned this early on is that if you can move them in their heart, then they're going to reach in and, and, you know, make a gift. But now, you know, they don't necessarily need to just write a charitable check. I was just having lunch with somebody who today who had sold their business probably for $50 million. And, you know, he was having this conversation about venture philanthropy, which, which is, look, you know, maybe what we need to do is invest in a number of entities 
and let some money managers grow that money and whatever capital gains go to, you know, selected charities or, um, you know, there's a, I know Ross Hall out in, in California started a venture philanthropy fund. I don't know if you'll mind me mentioning it, but you know, they would invest, they would take gifts and they would invest in, in startups. And if it hit big, then all that money would go to, to a, a not-for-profit. So there's all sorts of different ways, I guess I'm getting to is, is having impact, you know, mm-hmm. helping people have impact. And, you know, what I've said all along for me in my life is that, you know, my goal is to empower organizations and individuals to go out and have impact in the world. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Yeah. And I'd love to talk with you about some of those ways, because what you alluded to right there with, with some of those, those donors is that they're finding a way to take um, some of the benefits or the residuals, maybe even of the wealth they've created and then dedicate that to philanthropy or set up their own entities. But um, people have been doing that in, in many ways for a long time, but they're finding new ways to do that, aren't they? What are some mm-hmm. of the things that you're identifying as the ways that, that donors can uh, have that impact today and some of the ways that fundraisers can interact with them as true partners to help them to, to do those things? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, what, what are donors doing today to, that's different? Um, you know, it, again, it's, it's their resource. And which sometimes as fundraisers, you know, we, we forget that. But they're looking to, um, they're problem solvers, right? So they're looking to, you know, create an opportunity that's going to address a, a needed change in the world. And whatever, be, and a lot of them, you know, have a business mindset to it. You know, we've gone, we've gone through this whole shift of, you know, I've seen is, you know, people used to just give money and, you know, let the nonprofits do what they wanted to do. But I think, you know, when, you know, Silicon Valley took off and you, you had Sand Hill Road and all that people like, I'll give a buck and see what happens. And then I'll give you another two bucks. And it became, you know, this investment philosophy. And, and so there's a lot of that, you know, going on with, with, with donors is what can I invest in that's going to make a difference, um, you know, make a difference. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be through a charitable organization. You know, I was, um, uh, what I'm seeing more and more of right now is a lot of money going to advocacy. It was on a, on a call with some folks over in Europe and they were talking about um, how much money is going towards advocacy right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of staggering. Um, but I don't know, I don't know, Jay, if I've answered that exactly um, how, you, how you asked me. Well, I, I, no, I think you're getting to the heart of it though, which is your experience in talking with people and figuring out, First, where, where is their heart today? And then how are they finding a way to address the concerns they see? Advocacy is a great example of this. At least in the past, it seemed to me that people steered away from funding things that might be considered advocacy in many places. I don't know. Maybe that's just a misperception on my part. Well, you know, I think, you know, and, and from a, it seems like there's a right and left in everything right now. You know, there's a right and left in politics. There's a right and left in churches. And there's a right and left in nonprofits. Um, and so when people start funding their uh, political ideologies, you know, to, to, to achieve a certain objective because, you know, certain governments can, you know, put an incredible amount of money towards certain things, which, you know, is scary. And 
now, you know, as a lawyer, I'm seeing things, you know, they, they bubbles up and it's going to wind up in Supreme court, you know, it's eventually mm-hmm. charity against, you know, one charitable cause, if you will, against another charitable cause, if you, if you want to, if you want to look that, that hard at it. it. Well, you just brought up something that, that is hitting the Supreme court and uh, there, it seems to be pitting two ideas against one another within our sector about whether or not uh, the names of donors should be visible to the public. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about that? Is that something you've run into as you either talk to donors or just thought about yourself? Well, you know, I think it's just kind of, I, I try to look at what is the root of, you know, where they start. So the three states, so there's two things that are going on. One of the, the U.S. Supreme Court, that case is, I think it's New York, New Jersey, and California, if I'm correct, have, you know, on the Schedule B, any donors over $5,000 have to be reported, right? Yeah, right? Or, yeah or 2%, I guess. Of, yeah. yeah. And so, so you have that issue and, and, you know, so if, if it passes, they're going to find it, you know, donors will find another way to hide their names um, and, and still achieve the other objective. I mean, I, you know, I, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, that, that this, it's in the Supreme court, but I think that if, you know, the, the states lose that, right. Um, you know, it's a win for donor private donor privacy, so to say, but um, it, it's too much. It's just one more headache for a lot of nonprofits to go through to report, you know, those donors, um, you know, but then on the other side of it, you have the donor privacy laws, which are um, mm-hmm. more significant. You know, it started in California and there's a number of states that have it. And, you know, who owns the data? You know, somebody like Facebook and Google, they own all that data and all that stuff. But, you know, the mail houses that buy lists and sell lists, they've got, you know, a bigger cha- challenge with these donor privacy things because they can't really, you know, sell stuff out in certain states. So you have two things going on. You have that on the Schedule B of the 990s, and then you have the donor privacy laws that are happening. But it's all it's all going to cascade down on each other, on on it. It's, it is who owns your donor? Who owns your your data? Do you as a person own it, or does somebody else own that data? And it, I think you it. Eventually, what we're going to see is we're all going to control our own data and give permission to who can use it. I'm tempted to ask you what your thoughts are on that, but I realize that's venturing close to a legal opinion, so I won't do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, like I said, I think that uh, donors are going to stay one step ahead of everybody, and and like, and, and even that they, if they want to accomplish something, let's mm-hmm. let's say you have a nonprofit that you know has to has to declare a donor, you know, giving it a certain level, mm-hmm. um, you know, a donor can achieve that objective without having to go through a nonprofit. Maybe it's more, and I don't know the political laws as I should, but, uh, you know, maybe it's more to reveal who's supporting, you know, what, mm-hmm. what organizations that has a political leaning one way or the other. And, you know, I don't think that's good for anybody because you have all this targeting and you have too much noise Right now, individuals are being attacked for, you know, just because of what their beliefs are. And I think that that's wrong. Yeah, it's uh, it does seem like we're in a really fraught time where uh, as there's a lot of polarity. And I'm wondering if uh, if the future fundraising, the segue into that, um, provides some antidotes to that or not. Um, now, so first of all, for those who are listening, you have a new book, uh, which is The Future of Fundraising is Here. And. 
maybe you can take us through that book a little bit and tell us some of the issues you address and, and whether or not it'll help us to tackle some of these big things that are already that we're confronting right now that are lingering. Well, yeah, I wrote the book. I did you know, I, I thought a lot about, you know, what kind of book can I write that wasn't talking about major gifts or capital campaigns, kind of a guidebook, you know, and say, well, let's take a look at, you know, where this space is going. And clearly, you know, technology is having a major impact on certain aspects of fundraising, but also um, the way money is being managed and moved is having an impact. And the way um, certain laws are being created uh, is, ha- is having an impact. So, you know, the book has um, some, 10 chapters and, you know, we start with um, artificial intelligence and how it's going to s- speed up. Really, I think the identification of, of donors and the um, ties to what they like versus, you know, right now we, we kind of say, okay, let's go meet somebody and find out if they're interested in supporting an organization. But artificial intelligence is really going to help the donor self-select what they want to give to. But it's, it's far more complicated than, than that because there's also some, eth- what we're going to see is some, now we're going to see some, the ethics of right. artificial intelligence and, you know, machine learning. And, and, you know, I was told a story recently that, and I don't know if Jay, you told me, but, you know, someone put two computers next to each other that were talking to each other, artificial intelligence, and they came up with their own language and they had to unplug the machines um, because they, they realized that, you know, I guess somebody else was listening. I don't know how true that is, but I think that's kind of where we're going to get to. And then, you know, um, we talk, I, you know, I talk about diaspora giving, which is, you know, people you know, don't really know a lot about that, but that's where money moves cross borders. You know, it used to be like a lot of immigrants coming in from, let's say Mexico, it's, let's say, would they send a lot of money back into Mexico to support families, but you have that happening globally. Mm -hmm. And, and so blockchain philanthropy is going to have a a positive impact on that as it comes to the vote, because it's going to cut out fees and that, but it's also going to allow nonprofits that, that, you know, like in the States are supporting, you know, like Habitat, you know, you know, multiple entities overseas, you know, move, move money a lot easier. And then, you know, I, I, I talk about the need for mergers and collaborations and, and um, downsizing, if you will. Uh, Cause I think the space is, the, the space has been ripe for it for a long time. It's just, you know, what, what's going to take it, what's going to make that happen. You know, you don't want to take the heart of anyone's desire to do anything, but are we really serving ourselves well by spending so much money on, you know, facilities and personnel and, um, you know, duplicative programs, you know? So I, I, I think it's, it, it needs to happen. And then, um, you know, I talk about donor advised funds and what their impact is going to be in the donor privacy laws because the donor advised funds, impact investing, the numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so you have, what, I think it's a half of half a billion dollars, you know, impact investment funds and a ton of money sitting in, in donor advised funds. And, and so that we, you know, we talk a lot about that. So I, what I, what my objective was to get nonprofits to say, you know, to look at their future, if you will, and say, you know, we can't be surprised by the things that are coming our way. We have to be prepared to adapt to it, nor can we be surprised by the next uh, coronavirus or the next, 
you know, economic slowdown, whatever, we need to adapt and make sure that we can still do that which we want to do and accomplish. And so that was part of part of the reason why why I want I wrote, I wrote the book because you know it's it's actually it's here right now. All these things that I wrote in the book are happening right now mm-hmm. um, in the space. But they are futuristic for some who are listening. I mean, you know, blockchain, for example, all the contributions of cryptocurrency are something that are very much uh, uh, in alpha, uh, beta at best for most organizations. They don't know what it is, let alone how to do it. Um, uh, AI is associated with a couple of companies that provide services that are labeled that way and so forth. And this whole idea about mergers and collaboration and downsizing, even though that's something I guess that's probably always existed for nonprofits, it's interesting to hear when you get into a clubhouse room, uh, there's so many people who have just founded their own nonprofit and they talk about it like it's like they own it, like it's their business Mm -hmm. instead of a social good, which they have founded and manage or serve on the board of. And so even though these things may all be happening, uh, there's a small percentage of our sector who are really fully engaged in it. Many who look at these things and they look like, you know, rocket ships to Mars. Mm-hmm. So how, how, do, how do we get the organizations that are on the beginning of that learning curve to recognize the value of these things and start adopting some of these approaches so they can really serve the public needs better? You mean some of the things that I talked about in in the book and, and adopting those, those approaches? Yeah, yeah. You know, again, it's um, uh, you know, one of the, uh, somebody posted some something on LinkedIn about about the book, and um, then another uh, group responded saying, you know, we read the book and we're actually implementing a number of the things that you know Paul Paul mentioned in the book. Now, was you know, you know, made me made me feel good, but I, I again. When you look at revenue, you know your revenue streams. Right. You know you you know we, we used to talk major gifts, plan gifts, you know events, you know, special events, you know social media and stuff. You have to look at um, the impact of all those things in there because you, you could probably add another half dozen revenue streams based on you know the things that I talk about in the mm-hmm. book. And but again, you know, all these things are great, but if you don't have the bandwidth within your organization to do it, then you know, you just got to focus on the biggest fire in the house, you know, at the time. And that's part of the problem is, you know, you have you like I said a lot of well-intentioned people who start nonprofits and you know, they're just competing, you know, with each other to raise money when they really need to be to join forces and do, you know, to work, work together. But, you know, I understand, I understand why people start nonprofits. You know, there's a lot of things that happen. I, you know, I have a uh, friend who started a nonprofit. His mother died of, of colon cancer and, you know, he started a great nonprofit and that led to, to a merger, but he was so, so moved, you know, and that's what happens. People come into this space from all different places. You know, they were an alcoholic. Now they're reformed. They started a you know, nonprofit for rehab, you know, it's like mothers against driver, drunk drivers. Remember that and that, how that started or breast cancer, you know, people have loss and pain and it's, this is their way to try and do something to, you know, help the world. So it doesn't happen again and, and, and make them feel, feel better. I guess it's cathartic and it's needed, but you know, we have to think about the greater good that's being served. 
you've gone through your own trials and tribulations in your family. And I'm sure that you saw all these mechanisms that could enable you to address them, whether it's as a form of catharsis. And I, I mean that very respectfully, mm-hmm. all the people who, as you say, they form engines of change in order to make change, but also to feel whole again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so you, those are things that you could have done. Uh, you also raise a lot of money for a lot of great causes. And that's something else you can do. How have you um, taken some of the work that you've done and applied that in your own life as you went through these uh, these major uh, moments in your life with with your son and and in your own uh, uh, battle with cancer? Yeah, you know, for my son, you know, I I didn't really know a whole lot about cancer. So if you would talk to me about cancer prior to my son, who you know back in '96 was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma and then passed probably seven months later, you know, it's like, uh, I probably would not have had the reaction to want to make sure that no kid ever in the world had cancer again. But, you know, and I was fundraising at the time, you know, I, I was started my company in 94. So that was, you know, three years into it. And, um, you know, and so I, I sought out um, those charities that were trying to do something that would help that solve, solve that problem, Mm -hmm. you know, and I got involved and engaged like a lot of people do, you know, there weren't any walks for me or, or, well, I think there was back then it was leukemia, you know, I did the the marathon and raised money. Um, And, and so that, that became a big part of where I wanted to have impact, but um, you know, and so, so was with my faith and education, you know, helping churches and helping schools and universities and, you know, getting, making sure that scholarship monies were available for kids who didn't have the opportunity. You couldn't afford to have the opportunity because I was blessed um, to, you know, not worry about those things that other people didn't. So I just want to make a difference. And then for me, you know, my personal cancer journey, journey now twice, two different cancers, um, you know, I, I look and say, okay, you know, how can I help in these areas? Because that's what I know a lot about. And when you're talking to you know, a donor, let's say, um, you know, and specifically when you have a loss of a child, you know, only somebody who's lost a child can really be empathetic and understand what it, what that's like. I mean, and I'm not trying to take away from anybody who, ha- you know, who's, you know, raising money for cancer causes, but there's a, like an embrace that you have. And, and I think with a lot of organizations that, that do that, to be able to have that conversation genuinely, you're not just raising money, is important. You know, like somebody who, like for me, you know, going through Notre Dame and raising money for Notre Dame, it's a lot easier, you know, it's, it's not the way it is now, but it's a lot easier for me to talk to an alum, you know, about my experience and get him to raise money. And there's a comfort level with that. So, you know, my life experiences with, with cancer and, and even, you know, adoption and, um, you know, health stuff. It just kind of, kind of, it made me empathetic to so many different things. Um, that's kind of, you know, for me, it's a catharsis, cathartic experience of trying to help others because, you know, what, you know, why are we here? You know, I, I think I mentioned to you, Jay, I think, you know, we're here, to give back to the world. And I, I don't, I think that if we give to the world, the world gives back. 
Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just think that the, they exist so the world could give to them. And that's really not the way it is. You know, we, we were made, you know, that's what philanthropy is about, right? It's the Greek from love of humankind. And we're here to, you know, help others. And um, I, 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 you know, from my faith tells me that's the way we're wired. And that's where we find our joy, joy, peace, and contentment. And, you know, when you find people who, who give and, uh, you know, they, they do, they do. That's why we say joyful giving, because they really have an understanding of that. Right. Like it veered off a little bit, but, you know, my mind gets to that place when I start thinking about my life experiences like that. So where is your life taking you now? You just finished this book. You did, you know, built your firm and done all this work. Where do you expect to go next? You know, I, I'd, um, so I really, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, I didn't get into this business because I, as you know, as I, as I mentioned, I didn't want to, you know, go sinking. You know, I'm going to be a fundraiser when I grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've met so many amazing people around the world, you know, in all sorts of different walks of life. I mean, you know, working with Habitat and, um, I think I mentioned to you when we first talked about meeting Desmond Tutu, you know, an apartheid build, you know, or going to, you know, doing some fundraising in the UK and sitting in the, you know, parliament with one of the Lords and just some really cool experience. And, and some of those people, you know, not all are, are friends that I still, you know, communicate with, but I've seen the worst, some of the worst places in the world. And I've seen some of the best places in the world and, you know, how kind of, people with just ridiculous amounts of money live, which is, you know, it's, it's, that's fine. But for me, it's really, how do I continue to help? I, I've got about 3 million air miles under me. Um, <laughs> you know, so COVID was kind of a mixed blessing though. I still made 20 States uh, during COVID and I don't know how I did it and stayed healthy through the whole experience. Um, and uh you know, I want to I want to help as many um, organizations, whether whether it's a um, nonprofit or not, it's a business, um, or it's a B corporation, or um, it's a it's a donor trying to you know think through you know their giving or or a foundation. You know, I just want to be able, because I want to be able to continue to help them think through strategically. You know, going back to, you know, how do you go have an impact in the world and leave it a better place? And, you know, what's your legacy? And so I guess that's for my legacy. You know, I never got into this business to become rich. There are some people in this business who are incredibly, you know, profited mightily. That that was never my intent to to do that when getting into this work. It was really just really out to do good. So as you look back and then you think about, uh, this journey, what, what's the biggest change you've seen in this world of philanthropy from the times you first had meetings with people who you might later recognize as donors through your journey through Notre Dame, up through anything you've had last week? What's the biggest change in this field? I think the biggest change is the need. I mean, the, the need is just, you know, with technology and social media and everything, you, it's just so apparent, um, you know, how much is needed 
to help other people around the world. I mean, just by way of example, there was a fundraiser for, you know, there's the COVID, um, I think it was 350,000 people a day in India were getting sick and, you know, um, you know, there was an online fundraiser. I can't remember whether it was, I think it was $50 million that was raised online and I may be wrong, but with the, the globalization of everything and our, our ability to see right away, you know, it's, it's not that, not that difficult to realize how great the need is around the world and how lucky most of us are who live in this country. And, you know, that, that's what I think it is. Thank you so much, Paul. Really appreciate this. It's my pleasure. I, I could, this has been my life. So it's a lot of, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great, it's been a great journey. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions. 